looks as though we have a good crowd present this morning. We appreciate the presence of everyone. I hope you'll make your plans to be back with us this evening at 5.30 as we continue our study of Does It Matter? Does It Matter About Things? And we're going to talk tonight as we continue that study. We've talked about does it matter about what we believe? Does it matter about authority? Does it matter about which church? This evening at 5.30 we're going to talk about does it matter which church of Christ? And so that may be a question you have in mind. Does that really matter? Come back and be with us for that study if you can. Let's open our Bibles to Ecclesiastes 7. We're going to be spending our time there, so we're not just making a quick reference and then leaving it, so you have time to get your Bible open there to Ecclesiastes or your phone app open to that or whatever you're following with. You're going to benefit by having a text open. This is... Obviously, in the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes is in the setting of the poetry books of the Old Testament, or what we call the wisdom literature. Uh, They're called the wisdom literature because it has to do with practical, everyday living. You will benefit from this study. Uh, I've benefited from it and will benefit as I present it, and hopefully you'll benefit as well. There's something here for you in Ecclesiastes 7, as there's something all through Ecclesiastes and Proverbs and Psalms and Job and the other books that have fit into the wisdom literature. Ecclesiastes 7 deals with the value and the limits of wisdom. We're not going to go through every verse, uh, but I want to get kind of a sampling of what Ecclesiastes 7 is saying, and then we're going to come back and look at some particular things therein. But Ecclesiastes 7 deals with the value and the limits of wisdom. There are four things that are dealt with in this chapter. Verses 1 to 10 focuses on wisdom makes life better. That if you have wisdom, then here's some things you embrace. For example, we're going to be seeing some of this. A good name is better than precious ointment. If you understand that, that makes life better. Uh, It's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. If you understand that... Wisdom makes life better. We'll get to all of that here in just a moment. The second point is beginning at verse 11 through verse 14 is the value of wisdom. Here's what wisdom will do for you. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. Wisdom, verse 12, is a defense as money is a defense. There is value in having. So wisdom makes life better. There's value in having wisdom. Thirdly, he talks about wisdom avoids extremes. In other words, there are circumstances and situations that you can't change. But how do you react to that? Wisdom avoids reacting in this extreme, and wisdom avoids reacting in that extreme. We'll see what those extremes are in a moment. And then at the end of the chapter, he talks about searching for wisdom. If wisdom is valuable, you want to seek for it. Let's see where I can find it. Let me see if I can obtain it. Let's see if I can get that wisdom. And so that's what Ecclesiastes 7 is about. I want to look at a particular word found in Ecclesiastes 7. You might want to circle these so that you go back and you remember this is the same word. The word better is found eight times within ten verses. And I want to point these out to you because we're going to look at them throughout the context of our study. A good name is better than precious ointment. There's our first use of the word better. Verse 2 said, better to go to the house of mourning. Verse 3 says, sorrow is better than laughter, and a sad countenance heart is made better. And by sad countenance, the heart is made better. And so there's 4. Verse 5 is the fifth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. 
We go further at verse 8 now. Verse 8 uses it twice. The end of a thing is better than the beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud. And then verse 10, some would say, why are the former days better than these? And so there are eight times within ten verses that he uses the word better. That very same word that is translated better is also translated good in the context. I don't have on the screen, but verse 1, a good name, that word good is the same word as the word better. But in verse 11, wisdom is good. That's the same word translated better. And the same thing is in verse 18. It is good that you grasp this. That's the same word for the word better. This must be part of what he's trying to drive at in the chapter if eight times plus at least three more times he's emphasizing things are better. So let's talk about better things. Let's talk about better things found in Ecclesiastes 7. There are some things said to be better than something else. Now again, this is in the wisdom literature, and so consequently we're learning some things about practical daily living. We're not going to learn a great deal about doctrine here. We'll talk about some of that kind of thing tonight. We're not going to learn about here is the principle you have to accept and believe in order that your soul might be saved, and whether or not Jesus is the divine Son of God, but we're learning some practical daily living things right here in Ecclesiastes 7. So there are 12 of those, so we're not going to spend a great deal of time on any one of these, but let's run through some things we find in Ecclesiastes 7. Here's the first. Reputation is better than luxury. Reputation is better than luxury. Let's look at verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of one's death is better than one's birth. Reputation is better than luxury. So here's what I'm learning from that. Your good name has reference to your reputation, but even more, the character that stands behind that reputation. Because, you see, one could have a good reputation, and that's a false reputation. They're not that person at all. But your good name is your character that is reflected in the reputation that you have. So that good name, that character, that reputation is better than precious ointment. This reminds us of Proverbs 22. So let's go to Proverbs 22, if you will. Uh, We'll come back to Ecclesiastes, but Proverbs 22 and verse 1, a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, loving favor than silver and gold. If you had your choice and you say, I can't have a good reputation and be wealthy, which would you, uh, but I could be wealthy without the good reputation. I can't have both, but I can have one or the other. Which would you choose? And what the proverb writer is saying, that good reputation is worth more than silver and gold that you might receive anywhere else. Let's go back now to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And as we talk about verse 1, there is a play here on words of the name and ointment. Now that may not be obvious to us in the English. He said a good name is better than precious ointment. You say, okay, I don't see a play on words. I quote here from the handbook on Ecclesiastes that further a literary feature is assonance. That refers to a word that has, a, has similar sounds. Let's see if you don't see the similar sound. The word for name is shim, and the word for all is shim, shimin. Sounds very similar, don't they? And they sound very much like there's a play on words. Well, what's that all about? Well, here's a, an ecclesi- a Song of Solomon. Go over to Song of Solomon. We're going to be tracing some other references along. Go to the book of Psalm, uh, Song of Solomon, look at chapter 1 and in verse 3. 
He talks about, because of the fragrance of your good ointments, your name is ointment point four. And there again are those two words that sound very much alike. Your name is ointment. Your shem is shimen. There is a play indeed on words. Well, here's another author that makes the same point. Jameson Fawcett and Brown make this point. That the Hebrew uh, for name and ointment have a happy paranomasia which means same thing as assonance, that is, they have similar sounds. And that is, ointment is a fragrant, now notice what they say, is only in the place where the person whose head or garment are scented and only for a time. That's part of the play on words. And so here's the idea of one having a head garment, and there is oil anointed upon their head or upon their garment, and that has a fragrant pleasant aroma, but it's only for a time and only wherever that person is, but your name and your reputation goes much further and deeper and lasts longer than that. That's part of the point of this passage. Now in Ecclesiastes chapter, let's go back to the Ecclesiastes, but go to chapter 10 and in verse 1, dead flies putrefy the perfumer's ointment. In other words, it's possible, but then it causes it to give, and it causes it to give off a foul odor. So here is a precious ointment that gives a fragrant play, uh, aroma. There could be something done to that ointment so that it gives off a foul odor. And perhaps he's alluding to that principle here in our context of Ecclesiastes 7. So what's Ecclesiastes 7.1 saying? It's better to have a good reputation because of your character than to live in luxury. And so all it's saying is good reputation is better than anything else you, you might obtain. You say, I don't have anything and I, I, I wished I had wealth. Do you have a good character and a good reputation? You've got something of value. There's something practical to learn from that. Now let's go back to Ecclesiastes now. And let's go back to chapter 7 again and in verse 1. I'm learning from this, the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Now that sounds a little odd, doesn't it? The day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Verse 1b. And that's based upon that good reputation of verse 1a. And that is, if you have that good reputation, the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. That is, one's reputation is not completely secured and established until the day of their death. And that's because there's still time to ruin it. So you may be 70, 80 years old and you had a good reputation, you've still got time to ruin it. But the day of your death, if you still have that good reputation, you've sealed that reputation. That's why, one of the reasons why, the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. I take it that it's not so much a contrast between birth and death, but the day you receive your name and the day that it appears in the obituary is contrasted. And what happens in between that is what really matters. When, what, what did you do with the day, from the day you were born to the day you die? What did you do with that period of time? And when you leave, do you leave behind a loving fragrance of the play on verse 1a, or do you leave behind a foul stench? There are people when they die, they leave behind this loving fragrance because when we mention their name, it's a pleasant aroma. There are others, they leave behind a foul stench. Just the mention of that name turns you off because of the character they have. And so the day of one's death is better than the birth. There's another sense in which that's true. And that is, at the day of our birth, all of our sorrows lie ahead of us. The day of your death, all your heartaches are behind you. There is an advantage to the day of your death. You say, this is terrible, I'm, I'm, I'm at the point of death. But I tell you what, when you come to death, all of your heartaches are going to be behind you. 
And we so are joyful over the day of one's birth, but you know that child has got a lot of heartaches ahead of him. They got a lot of heartaches ahead of them. And that's why, one of the reasons why the day of one's death is better than the day of their birth. Here's the third thing. Look at verse 2. A funeral is better than a party. Look at verse 2. Better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for it is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. A funeral is better than a party. The psalmist would teach us to number our days, Psalm 90 and in verse 12. You see, going to a funeral causes us to reflect on the brevity of life, how brief life is. Particularly if the person that has died is, is someone closer to your age and the closer those numbers get when you're young, you go to an old person's funeral. And, and as time goes on, maybe that, younger, that gets younger of the person dying and, the, and you're getting older. And the closer those numbers get, it causes us to reflect on the brevity of life. We think about it, a funeral passage is like James chapter 4, that life is a vapor, it appears for a little while and then vanishes away. We, we're impressed with that. Job 14, Job said, man that is born of woman is a few days. The older we get, we recognize, you know, man, this goes by fast. It goes by fast. You see, that reflecting on the seriousness and the brevity of life makes us wiser and more mature. And that reflection has a positive impact on us, more so than at a party. How many parties have you been to where there's laughing? Nothing wrong with that. But you're laughing and you're cutting up and we're having a good time and people are telling jokes and we're just having a big time and you walk away from that and you say, you know what? I really learned from that party. What did you learn? I learned about the brevity of life. I learned about the seriousness of life. I want to make changes in my life because I went to that party. You don't do that, but you do that at a funeral. Let's talk about the house of mourning at verse 2. That probably is the place where people are gathered to mourn for a person. That may be a funeral home or maybe some other place. And it's better to go to that funeral home. It's better to go to the funeral than to the house of mourning. But it could refer to the home and go to the family. I quote again from the handbook on Ecclesiastes. It says, house can refer to the house itself or to the family. This can be expressed, the home where the people are mourning. Or it could be the bereaved family, so when the Kohelet, that's a reference to the preacher, that is Ecclesiastes, speaks of going to the home, he means the people should visit such a place to pay their respects. Maybe so. He may be urging it would be better you could go to the, to the party and have fun, or you could go and pay your respects, and you'll gain more from that than you will from the party. Now let's go back to Ecclesiastes 7. Look at verse 2. Here's the reason, and that's because death is the destiny of us all. Better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living take it to heart. See, that's what you're supposed to accomplish at a funeral. And rather than praising the person so much that we, 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 we put them into heaven, the, the point of a funeral really ought to be that the living take their life to heart. That this is an occasion for you to recognize, you know what, death's coming to you too. Learn something from that funeral. Let's go to verses 3 and 4 now. So reputation is better than luxury. Day of one death is better than the day of their birth. The funeral is better than a party. And sorrow is better than laughter. Perhaps you may not agree with that on the surface. 
Sorrow is better than laughter, verse 3 said, for by said countenance the heart is made better. Twice our word better is used. The heart of the wise is in the house of the morning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth. Sorrow is better than laughter. Now let's talk about laughter. The context has to do with that feasting of verse 2, the party. There is a place for laughter. In fact, the very writer, the preacher said in the very same book, chapter 3, verse 4, that there's a time and a place for laughter. He's not condemning laughter. It's not an either-or situation, but a balance. He's not saying you ought to be one who mourns and never laugh. Don't, don't be one who just takes life so that you, you, you just don't need to be laughing at all. He's saying there's a time to laugh. And so we're going to laugh. We're going to have a big time. We're going to party. That's not the point. The point is there needs to be balance, that there is more to be gained from sorrow than there is from laughter. And what's the sorrow he's talking about? This is sorrow such as arises from the serious thought about death and eternity as per the context. And being in the presence of people who have sorrow and people who are mourning, we learn more than from laughter. If you know me well, you know that I can probably outlaugh anybody present. You want to be in a contest? We'll try that. I bet I can outlaugh you. Man, we can have a big time. And we love to laugh. But I know what? In any of that laughter, I've never walked away saying, you know what? Here's what I learned from that. I may have learned a joke that I want to tell to somebody else, but I didn't learn anything about the seriousness of life from all of that laughter. But I did learn that when I'm in the presence of someone who's sorrowing. When people are sitting across my desk and they're crying and they're telling me their problems and telling me how sad their life is and can I help them with that, I learned something from that. And so do you. It teaches us about life and about death and what's important. It leads us to change and to maturity. <clears throat> Sorrow is better than laughter. Here's another thing that's better. A rebuke is better than a song. Look at verse 5. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than, to hear, than for a man to hear the song of fools. A rebuke is better than a song. See, the rebuke of the wise suggests a change needs to be made. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a rebuke. So someone comes to you and they tell you about a change they see you need to make. I want to help you. I, I want you to see you make the change. You've done something wrong or you need to improve. None of us like that. None of us like that. We may even tell the person, I appreciate your interest in my soul. I appreciate your interest in my life. And thank you for helping me, but deep down we don't like that because we wished we didn't have to make a change. Now let's talk about the song of fools as per the context. That's contrasted to the rebuke, so it must have reference to things we want to hear. I'm not sure it just includes something set to music. It may include the song, but it is contrasted to the rebuke. Contrasting to the rebuke is what I want to hear. I want to hear what you say good about me. I want to hear your praise. I want to hear good things. I like that. You do too. But which is better? But notice at verse 6. Verse 6 says, For like the crackling of the thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. What's he saying? It has no lasting value. And so you take thorns and you put them under the pot that you're going to cook with and you put the thorns and you light them afire and you hear the crackling and the noise. It makes a lot of noise, but it doesn't generate any heat. There's no value in that. And so the flattery of the fool and the, the song of the fool and the praise the fool passes upon you, you like it, it sounds good, it makes a lot of noise, but it has no lasting value at all. 
You see, with wise rebuke, wise advice, it's often ignored and pushed aside because we'd rather listen to fools and thus we're easily turned. Let's go to the Psalms. Let's notice a couple of references in Psalms now, or at least one in Psalms. Let's go to the 141st Psalm and notice in verses 4 and 5. Do not incline the ear, uh, do not incline my heart to anything evil to practice wicked words with men who work iniquity and do not let me eat of their delicacies. Let the righteous strike me, it shall be kindness. Let him rebuke me, and it shall be excellent all. Let my head not refuse it. You see what the psalmist is saying? Don't let me hear the song of fools. I don't want to hear that. What I want to hear is the rebuke of the wise. What's he saying? He's saying the tendency sometimes is for us to do just the opposite. Uh, Proverbs. Let's go to Proverbs 13 and look at verse 1. A wise son heeds his father's instruction. It may not be what he wants to hear. But the scoffer doesn't listen to rebuke. He doesn't like it. Pushes it aside. He likes the song of fools. While we're in Proverbs, let's go to the 17th division and look at verse 10. Rebuke is more effective for a wise man than a thousand blows on a fool. See, the fool doesn't listen. But the wise man does listen. See, the wise person's rebuke will do more good than the flattery of fools. So would you rather be around people who are flattering you and telling you how good you are, how great you are, and what you mean to them, and they're just flattering, and and they don't really mean all of that. Hey, do you rather hear that, or would you rather have a wise person say something to you that's going to make you better? One we like, the other one we don't, but the text is saying a rebuke is better than a song. Here's something else that's, that's, uh, well, let's quote from Jameson Foster Brown. See, godly rebuke often offends, godly reproof offends the flesh. That's interesting but benefits the spirit. A fool's song in the house of mirth pleases the flesh but injures the soul, which are interested in the flesh of the soul. Here's something else better. Look at verse 8 now. There's twice the term better is used. The end is better than the beginning. So let's go back. If you've left Ecclesiastes, go back to chapter 7 and look at verse 8. The end of a thing is better than the beginning. The end of the thing is better than the beginning. What does he mean by that? Well, the man who perseveres, weathers the storm, has passed the test. And that's better than the one that's not yet tested. It's not saying there's something wrong with the person who hasn't passed the test yet. Here's someone maybe just beginning their Christian life. They haven't weathered the storm yet. They haven't lived their life to the end. But here is one that's at the end of their life, and the end of a thing is better than the beginning because he's passed the test. He's weathered the storms. So there is that sense in which that's true. Another sense in which that's true is finishing a thing is more valuable than the beginning of it. Anything. These are kind of general statements to which there could be many specific applications. Finishing a thing is more of more value than the ending. You see, the end marks the completion of a task. Completing and finishing a task is more satisfying and rewarding than the starting of a task. How many of us have started a task and never finished it? Are you a starter? Maybe even something around the house. You started to do some repairs around the house and you never got back to that. You you started to do something and you never finished it. You started a task and you never finished that. Anybody can start a task. That's why the end is better than the beginning. Finishing it is far better. Same verse. Look at part, part B of that. The patient is better than the proud. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. 
What does that have to do with? Well, it ties with what the context is dealing with in part A. To get to the end, one has to be patient in anything. The end of life, the end of living the Christian life, end of serving God, have to endure. But the end of any project you have, you have to endure. It's easy to start a task, but then to see that through takes some patience, some endurance. So that's one reason the patient is better than the proud. At the beginning of a task, we're often overconfident. How many times have you started some project as something you wanted to do? It may be just, I'm going to read my Bible more. I'm going to pray more. I'm going to serve others more or whatever it may be. Maybe something with the family. I'm going to, and you're almost proud because you're confident you're going to be able to finish and you never do. The patient is better than the one who is proud. You see, proud can become angry. Verse 9 indicates, do not be hasty in your spirit to be angry. Here's something else I'm learning in light of verse 7. Go back to verse 7 just for a moment. Verse 7 said, surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason and bribe debases the heart. As one writer says, the long haul is better than the shortcut. Bribery is a quick way to get what you want. And that may have to do with verse 8b, that is, the patient is better than the one who is proud. One who is proud is always looking for the shortcut. I, I, I want to serve God, but I want the shortcut to serving God. I want to study my Bible and know my Bible, but I want the shortcut to that. Would be one application we could make of that. The long haul is better than the shortcut. I want a good family, but I want the shortcut to that. I want a quick, wheezy way to raise my family rather than putting the, I, I don't want to do the grunt work and get in there and work. I don't want to do that. Let's go to verse 10. The present is better than the past. Look at verse 10. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. And I'm learning from that. The present, in one sense, is better than the past. All too often we view the past with rose-colored glasses and it looks better than it really was. Do you ever look back a few years, particularly if you've got a little age on you, that you look back 20 years ago and that was the good old days. Man, things were really good back then. See, when I was in my 20s, I was around people who looked back to the... Uh, they were looking back, I was, that was in the 80s, so they were looking back to the, maybe the 50s or the 40s, and those were the good old days. Those were really the good old days. Not like today, this is far better back then. You see, then my generation comes along, and we tell the next generation, you know what, back in the 70s and 80s, that was the good old days. They were really good. That's better than it is now. And the next generation are going to look back to the 2000s and say, you know what, the 2000s were the good old days. You see, we look at the past through rose-colored glasses and we make it better than it really was. We forget some of the problems. So we say things like it was the good old days. Now, we see that similar, and I'm not going to take the time to trace over the book of Ezra, but remember when they built the temple, built the foundation of the temple, the older people started crying while everybody else was shouting. You know why? They remembered the temple before. I'm not saying it's parallel in all respects, but it gives some comparison. And verse 10 is saying the wise person knows better than to ask such a question. And the question was, why are the former days better than these? Why, why were things better back then than they are now? 
You see, we've got so much crime now. Why, why, why were the former days? We had crime back then. We had crime in the 80s. They had them in the 40s too, I want to tell you. Why, why were people now so disinterested in the Bible? They were disinterested in the 80s, they were disinterested in the 40s, and they were disinterested at the turn of the century. Former days were not really better than these. You see, there's the present is better in this sense. The past is gone. The present's what we have. You can't live in the past, but I can live in the present. The wise person doesn't inquire with such. Now let's look at verse 13. It's better to accept than to resent. Now we're getting a little deeper into some things. They're not quite as obvious what he's talking about. So he said, consider the work of God, for who can make straight what he has made crooked? What I'm learning from that, it's better to accept than to resent. One can't change what God does in his providence. One can't change that at all. You see, no one has the right to question God's dealings. Like Romans 11, and by the way, that's, it, that is in context of questioning God's dealings in providence. Where the, where the uh, Jews may ask the question, that why is God accepting the Gentiles? And the point being made by Paul is, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsel? Who's wise enough to advise God? God, I'm not sure you did this, this thing right. And so even though man may think he finds fault with God's way of having done something or something God allowed or tolerated, no one can change what he thinks is unfair. Now go back and read the verse in that light. Look at verse 13. Consider the work of God. In other words, what God has done or what God has allowed. Consider the work of God. For who can make straight what he's made crooked? If God made something crooked that you thought ought to have been straight, can you straighten it out? And the answer is no. There's not a thing you can do about that. So you're better to accept it than resent it. And so we learn from this, accept what you can't change rather than resent. Do you ever have things in life that you just can't change? You wished you could. I wish God had done this different, but he didn't do it different. Just accept it rather than resent it. Accept it rather than resent it. That would apply to prayer, wouldn't it? You see, God's answer to my prayer may be different than what I was expecting. And I cite 2 Corinthians 12, Paul had prayed to the Lord to remove his thorn in the flesh, and three times God said, my grace is sufficient for thee. God said, no, no, no. And God may tell me no, and the answer God gives may not be what I was wanting or what I was expecting, and so whatever the answer is, I need to learn to accept it rather than resent that. I will tell you, that's practical. Go to verse 14. It is better to accept prosperity and adversity. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. In the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man cannot find out what will come after him. It's better to accept prosperity. In other words, God has a purpose in them both. I may not always see the value in adversity. And I cite James 1. James 1, beginning at verse 1, talks about the, uh, there is value in persecution, in trials and temptations. There's value in that. Not, not that God causes uh, that or that God actually sends that, but he allows that. But there's value in that. So verse 5 said, if any lack wisdom, let him ask of God. What's that about? That I may not have the wisdom to see that what I'm going through, all these problems I'm going through, there's value and there's going to be benefit I gain out of that. But I just need to pray God will help me to see that there is value and endure through that. 
So I might not always see there's value in adversity. It, God could and he often does allow things so that it drives us to our dependence upon him. So you go through adversity, you go through trials, you go through problems and you say, why does God do this to me? Well, number one, God, I don't have no evidence God did it to you, but God allows things. And one of the things that's accomplished, he drives us to depend upon him. You're driven to your knees. So I need to learn to accept what comes my way in light of verse 13. Furthermore, I need to learn that it may be good that I receive or it may be bad. Like Philippians chapter 4, Paul said, I've learned in whatever state I'm in, therewith to be content. He said, I've learned how to abound and how to be abased. There were times he was doing quite well and there were times he didn't do quite well, but he said, I've learned to accept that. I just learned to accept all that. I've learned to be content. Let's go to Job. Remember Job in all of his trials and all of his tribulation that he went through. Notice in Job chapter 1 and in verse 21, Job said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Remember Job's attitude was, I had and I, I lost. Whatever it is, I'm just going to serve God. Well, you remember his wife told him, let's go to chapter 2, same book. Go to Job chapter 2 and look at verse 10. Job's wife told him to curse God and die. And he said, you speak like a foolish woman. Should we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Are you telling me that, that if God gives us good, we ought to accept that? And that when he sends us adversity, we will say, no, we don't, don't send that our way. What the proverb writer or Ecclesiastes writer is saying, God sends goodness, prosperity, and adversity but then I want you to go back to our text in Ecclesiastes 7. And notice what he says about that, Ecclesiastes 7 and in verse 14. Then he said, surely God has appointed one as well as the other, so that man cannot find out what will come after him. God so mingles them together is the point that man cannot tell what the future holds. There are going to be times you have great blessings, and then there's problems that come, and then you have more blessings, and you have problems that come. And there's no way in, in, on earth that you know what's going to happen next. So you can't say, you know what, come January through July of 23, I know I'm going to have nothing but, ad, but adversity. You don't know that. You might. And you can't say, I'm going to have nothing but blessing and no problems at all for that same period. You don't know that. Because God mingles adversity and prosperity. And what I need to do is to accept both. I may have some prosperity. Okay, I'll accept that. I may have some adversity. Okay, I'll accept that. So we should make the best of both the good and the bad time. So you may have some good time next year. Make the best of it. You may have some bad times. Make the best of that. That's what Ecclesiastes is saying. Let's go to verse 16 to 18. This is one of the harder sections for me of chapter 7. And I call it simply don't, it's better not to overreact. Better not to overreact. Before we get to verse 16, though, I want us to back up to verse 15 because I think that's the key to 16 to 18. So let's go to verse 15 now. I've seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness. That's number one. And number two, there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in wickedness. The preacher said, here's two things I've seen. I've seen righteous men die. They were living right, doing right, and they perished. I saw that. And I also saw this in my days. I saw wicked men who live a long life. Now that could cause people to overreact. 
So you just observe life a little bit and you say, I know a righteous man that died, died, died young. I know a righteous woman. She, she, she left behind her children and she just died in her youth. I don't understand that. I don't understand why, why, why that happened. And then I know some wicked people that seem like they, you can't, no matter what happens, you can't kill them. They just keep going and going and going. They live to be long. I don't know. Why does that happen? We can overreact. So here's what he said. Don't be overly righteous. See that in verse 16? Don't be overly righteous. Here's three things. Don't be overly righteous, don't be overly wise, and don't be overly wicked. He's not saying you can have too much righteousness, so, so don't, don't overdo it on being righteous. Kind of scale it back just a little bit. I wonder sometimes if I might footnote here, if some Christians are afraid they're going to overdo it, so they kind of scale it back. I'm, I don't, I'm afraid I'm going to overdo attendance. I'm afraid I'm going to overdo Bible study, so I scale it back. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, don't think of yourself as so righteous. Don't be self-righteous. Don't be too sure of your righteousness. Maybe I'm fearful something bad's going to happen to me because I saw it happen to righteous people. Don't be so arrogant and be so self-righteous that you're too sure of your own righteousness. Then he said, don't be overly wise. Is it, is it possible I could be too wise? I'm, I think I've got too much wisdom, so I need to see things. I'm going to quit learning so I can scale it back. That's... Doesn't make sense. What he's saying is, don't overdo your claim of wisdom. And particularly don't overindulge in guessing about God's wisdom and questioning his wisdom. Why did you do that? How could you allow the wicked to live long and the righteous to die? And then he says, and this is most important perhaps, don't be overly wicked. Some have taken that to mean, be a little bit wicked, but don't overdo that. You know, just a little bit of sin, don't, don't, don't hurt, but just don't be, have too much in your life. Don't have too much righteousness or too much sin. Just kind of do a little of both. That doesn't make any sense in the con. What he's saying is, don't think that since the wicked live long, you might as well go on and live wicked. See, that's an overreaction. You look at verse 15, you say, you know what, I, I've noticed that some of the wicked, a lot of wicked people live to be long, live, and I know some righteous people that died young. I want to live long, so I'm just going to be wicked, so I live long. That's an overreaction. Don't do that. And here's the last. Look at verse 21. It's better not to swallow everything you hear. Look at verse 21. He said, and do not take to heart everything people say lest you hear your servant cursing you. Don't take to heart everything people say. Well, let's back up before we get to that verse and talk about a general principle. It is always wise to not take everything you hear to heart. In other words, you hear. Let's talk about something else, then we'll come back to the context here. Proverbs 18. Let's look at a couple of verses in verse chapter 18. Because this is, this is just good wisdom. Proverbs 18 and in verse 13 says, He that answers a matter before he hears it, it's folly and shame. In other words, you draw conclusions before you have all the data. You've only heard part of it. That's foolish. So you hear a report about some brother, some sister, or some event, or whatever, and you've only got a part of the story, and you start drawing all your conclusions together, and you're ready to wrap up your your, and seal your documents on that. I've got this figured out. You're very foolish if that's the case. You're better off not to take everything you hear to heart. Look at verse 17, same context. The first one to plead his cause seems right until his neighbor comes and examines him. If two people are at odds 
And the first one that comes and tells me their side of the story has so slanted that it makes it sound like they're right and their other person could not be anything but wrong. Until I hear the other side and I realize, you know what? There's two sides to this story. So what I'm learning is it's always wise not to take everything to heart. But here's the point here in chapter 7 of Ecclesiastes. So if you've left there, let's go back to Ecclesiastes 7 and look at verse 21. And he says, and do not take to heart everything people say. His point in this context is don't overreact to things that are said about you. It may be harsh things, critical things said about you. Some word that is directed towards you that you take to be critical, don't take that so much to heart. Now, if you take that seriously, you're going to let them ruin your day. Look at verse 21, lest you hear your servant cursing you. Very possible that you have a servant that because you've given them commands and you're working them hard, they're going to say something about you. I don't know that that means curse words, but it means they're going to say things against you. They're going to be critical of you. They're going to say bad things about you. You know, they've been a slave driver. They just say things that hurt your feelings. Don't take that so seriously. That'll ruin your day. Now, verse 22. This is very important. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. That's interesting. When you hear somebody say something, you overheard somebody saying a critical word about you, and you just take that so seriously, and you take that to the point that you're upset about it. Remember verse 22. There's probably been times you said something about that person too. And if they knew it, it would hurt them just as much as it hurts you. So just back off and don't worry too much about that. Is that not true? Oh, yeah, somebody says something about me, and I'm thinking, you know what? That kind of that stings. But you know what? If they knew what I'd said about them, it'd sting too. It sure would. And so what he's saying, don't swallow everything you hear. Just kind of pass that off, and your life's going to be much better. So I learned to weigh things out that we hear. When you hear something, just kind of weigh it out. And, and as to whether how serious you could should take that before you swallow all of that. And so there's a lot of things that we learn from Ecclesiastes 7. And we've only kind of skimmed the surface of Ecclesiastes 7. We hadn't seen everything. But I'm seeing some better things. I'm learning that reputation is better than luxury. The day of your death is better than the day of your birth. A funeral is better than a party. Sorrow is better than laughter. A rebuke is better than a song. The end of a thing is better than the beginning of a thing. To be patient is better than being proud. The present is better than the past. We're better off to accept rather than resent, to accept prosperity and adversity. It's better not to overreact. And it's also better not to swallow everything you hear. If we just take half of that, we had 12 things. If we only took six of those, let's reduce that down. Let's take three. If you only take three of those home that you can remember and you put them to practical use, your life will be better. Not because it was my sermon, it's because it was the preacher's message. It'll make your life better. If you just take even three of those and put them to use this week in your life. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?